Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and today I've asked my husband, Mike Murphy, to join me uh, co-hosting the podcast. Mike, it's nice to have you as part of the conversation here today. Thanks for saying yes. Glad to be here. (laughs) Um, People always enjoy it when you join and when we talk through your rumblings, and they always ask, "Why, why haven't I had you on more? Of course, your big work, your your big comment to that is, uh, I'm only on when she can't find a guest or something like that, <laughs> which is not true. <laughs> but our guest today, uh, I'm really delighted to invite back to Faith Conversations for the, I bet, at least the third time. Um, and that is Brian McLaren. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with his name. And uh, I love the fact that he's a former college English teacher. I think that comes through in how he writes. Uh, He was a pastor, though, for 24 years and has really been, um, oh, I don't know, what do you say, outspoken in in a way that I think has helped some of us grapple with some of our questions and doubts uh, of in faith or of faith. And I'm delighted to welcome him back to the podcast. So Brian, I'll I'll end the intro there and just say welcome back. Uh, well, thanks. And uh, it feels like we're just going to pick up right where we left off now that <laughs> we've so. had a few of these conversations. Great to be with you again. Thank you. And and let me let folks know, and I'll, of course, put all this information uh, in the show notes of the podcast, but you have a book out called Do I Stay Christian? And, you know, if I was on the ball, I'd have the name of your book just before this uh, written out. What if, faith, And it's not faith, on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Faith after doubt. Faith after doubt, which I thought was phenomenal. So did Mike. And I remember thinking, oh, this is your, you know, seminal work. And until this one came out, (laughs) (laughs) Um, do I stay Christian? And the subtitle is a guide for the doubters, the disappointed and the disillusioned. Uh, You've you've covered the crew right there, I think. Um, but before we get into the heart of the book, I, I do want to say why I invited Mike to join our conversation today. Uh, when your book came through the door of our house, I showed it to Mike and he said, can I take a look first? I said, yes. I said two things. Yes, but don't lose it, please. <laughs> and he, in the stacks, you know, we have stacks here. Um, and so Mike took it and then not all that long after he uh, said to me, I am going to read through, do I stay Christian through Lent? And so he used it as part of his Lenten practice and has read through the entire book. And that's part of why, you know, I've touched on the high points and I've not read the whole thing yet because Mike had it (laughs) and Mm. um, he's read the whole book. And so that's partly why I invited him to join us. And periodically he would mention things from the book that he read and we would have little mini conversations along the way. So that gives you uh, the reason why it's not just me here in the conversation. Um, With that all said, let me start with um, what precipitated the writing of Do I Stay Christian? Uh, Faith After Doubt, I thought was incredibly powerful, but I'm just wondering if you felt like there's some stuff left unsaid yeah. or the, or the feedback you got led you this way. Yeah. Well, uh, in, actually the two books I actually conceived of together. Um, and maybe I could explain it like this uh, in faith after doubt. I try to give a, a synthesis of the best thinking I've been able to find on human development and faith development. There's a whole group of psychologists and spiritual directors and uh, theologians who have been talking about how the spiritual life unfolds in stages. And this is nothing new. 
a lot of people don't think of it this way, but Teresa of Avila in the interior castle, the interior castle is a model of stages of spiritual development or uh, St. John of the cross with the dark night of the soul uh, uh, or uh, Meister Eckhart or so many different uh, of the great mystics, they yes. end up writing that are kind of diagrams or models or stages of the spiritual life. And so uh, in that book, I give this very, very simple four stage overview of, uh, of how we seen the pattern that many of us seem to go through, which is simplicity to complexity, to perplexity, to harmony or solidarity. And as I was working on that book, one thing I knew, we have a lot of churches that help people in the stage of simplicity. <laughs> we have growing numbers of churches that help people in the second stage of complexity. In fact, I think the megachurch phenomenon in many ways, <laughs> with all of its strengths and weaknesses, is a stage two uh -huh. phenomenon or expression of church. Okay. But as soon as people grow beyond stage two, it is very hard to find a congregation. And so a lot of people feel if they grow beyond stage two, obviously that most don't have that language, but if they grow beyond a certain point, they're not told that they're growing anymore. They're told they've left, left the, uh, you know, they, they've left the road. And, uh, uh, and so for those people, the question, do I stay Christian inevitably comes up? Is there even a place for me in this yeah. religion anymore? So that was a part of the Genesis. And then the other part of it, just to be blunt, is that more and more people I know who many of whom were clergy are no longer identifying as Christian. Mm -hmm. They've just decided that the label means so many contradictory things that they don't want to be associated with it anymore. And I feel that their concerns need to be taken seriously. And I have felt them myself. So that's kind of the, the, the dual Genesis of the book. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Brian, what do you think it is that when people, uh, you know, get to that second stage and are yearning for something beyond that, uh, churches don't, what, what's the reason the tools aren't there to take them where they need to go? What, yeah. what, what's going on? I, I, boy, I mean, Mike, I wish I had an easy answer for that. I think I have a complicated answer for that. And the complicated answer is that religion doesn't exist apart from culture and politics and economics. Okay. And culture, politics, economics, that whole framework that within which religion operates has an awful lot of power over what happens in the world of religion. And it usually, that power, as you know from a chapter in the book, is usually exercised by money. And so people in stage one like to hear certain things and they will pay money to hear those things reinforced. And people in stage two like to hear certain things and they will pay money to hear those things reinforced, and they will withdraw their money if those things are challenged. And so I think that is a big part of the answer. And I, I hate to say this, but I worked in Christian radio for years, you know, with the annual yes. share and people yes. would pay money. And to your point, I appreciated that you said, and withdraw money if certain things were not said or weren't taken away. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I just was with a pastor a couple of days ago, who told me that he preached a sermon. Uh, uh, I might've been his Easter sermon. I can't remember which. And someone sent him an email and basically said, if you preach another sermon like that, you will lose my support. So it was, and, and that happens. This happened through an email. Sometimes it just happens through a stern look at the end of the service, but these messages are given in a lot of different ways. And so one of the things I say in the book, I mean, this helps explain why you find so little preaching in American history before the 1860s against slavery. Uh, because a lot of people made their money directly or indirectly from slavery. And it was very hard to preach against it without having financial impact. And so that that's the the sort of grim answer, Mike, but maybe a, a slightly more compassionate answer is that we have whole systems that developed to keep stage one going. And um, so seminary, you didn't go yeah. to seminary and, and take courses 
is in how to become a more loving person. And, and you think, well, hold it. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love. It's just never been part of the seminary curriculum. So you end up with a system that reinforces a stage one obsession with what I would call belief policing. Right. Um, it, uh, proclaiming the right beliefs, policing the right beliefs. And there are a whole bunch of things that just weren't part of the system. And so good, sincere people get the things get reinforced that are part of the system. So right. part of stage three is critical thinking. And a lot of people don't want critical thinking. And a big part of stage four is learning unconditional love. And everybody would likes non-conditional love in theory. But if we really want to say, we actually have to learn how to practice this, it gets very difficult. Right. You know, Brian, Brian it's, you know, both of us are spiritual directors. We have people coming to us yes. uh, because they are asking a lot of questions. Yes. But, uh, some, sometimes they're coming, you know, their pastors have said, get a spiritual director. You know, they're the lucky ones yes. that, that yes. they have somebody com compassionate, but they come and it's almost like they, they, they say something that's a little out, out left field or right field or something. Yes. Say, that okay. And I go, yes, th this is sacred ground. We can talk yes. about all those things. And it's like this wall. Uh. <laughs> it, it, just, it just falls down because they're going, okay. I'm not weird. There, there, there are people relieved. Yeah, I'm not the only one in the world. Like that's this. it, Mike. That's it. And and listen, I'm so glad you bring that up because thank God for spiritual directors. They're the place where people could go to talk about yeah. stage three and stage four. I mean, there, it's a very short list of places. I I had this thing happen for oh, I would say it was ten or fifteen years. I mean, the, I wish I could have written down each story because it would be almost the identical script. It would go like this. Hi, Brian. I'm a Pentecostal pastor and I don't ever tell anybody this, but I would have lost my faith if I hadn't started going to a Catholic retreat center and meeting yeah. with a spiritual director, you know, or hi, Brian, I'm, you know, it would be a different denomination. You know, I'm a, uh, you know, reformed Presbyterian, Orthodox, you know, uh, Calvinist pastor. And I would have lost my faith if I hadn't gone to this Catholic retreat center where I started going on silent retreats. And then I went through the Ignatian exam. And so one by one, people find the, the fortunate ones find a place where they're allowed to grow beyond stage two and go through perplexity and go and then explore that stage of harmony. Um, so that's, yeah. And, and people like you, 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 you're the ones who are their oasis in the desert. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you came um, out of the room where you do spiritual direction. Uh, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, but you said um, something that I, I so appreciated. And I think you say it in probably different words, maybe Brian, but you said, Mike, you know, if you're not doing the order, disorder, reorder, or deconstruction, reconstruction, I mean, that's really a sign of health. If you follow through it, I mean, that's, if you have a growing faith, that's where you're going to be propelled to pretty much. Right. Yes. That's yeah. Oh, go ahead. Mike, you were, you were the one she was talking to there. Oh, no, no, no. I was, uh, either of you. Well, let me just say, uh, I, I think there are some people who, I don't know how it happens, but their life protects them from great pain. Their life protects them from, yes. from meeting people who shatter all the frameworks they inherited. I guess some of those people exist, but most of the people I know, if they live long enough, they reach this crossroads and the crossroads is that the data of their life starts to contradict what they were taught. And then they have to make a decision. Do I deny the data or do I challenge what I was taught? And that's a very lonely place to be. I, I had the, I remember a few years ago, the head of a Christian, a Protestant denomination, he was about to retire and he was, uh, and we were talking about his retirement and he said, no, I can't last much longer. He said, because the, the number of people who come to me telling me their churches are doing them damage because their churches won't let them be honest. 
uh, honest about their gay son or daughter, honest about their scientific questions, honest about whatever it was. He said, I just feel like I can't stay in this job anymore. I have to retire because I just have lost my faith that we're, he said, I, I've lost the faith that we're helping people. I'm seeing that we're hurting a lot of people. Mm. <sighs> Brian, in, in your book, you, you talk about there are, you go through a whole litany of reasons why somebody might want to leave the faith. Yes. Uh, and then come, then you come up with your own list of why, why you're, why you're staying in the faith. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Why are people, what, what was that? Yes. People, isn't that what it was? The, it was yes, no, yes. and how. And yeah. How, yeah. Well, uh, um, I think a lot of people, when they see a book like this, Do I Stay Christian? They think, okay, this is going to be a book where a religious writer tricks me into trusting him and then tells me that I have to stay Christian or I'm going to hell or I have to stay Christian or I'm a dishonest, uh, uh, you know, liar or that they'll, they'll argue me with evidence into a corner and say, see, I proved that you have to stay Christian. And I, that's not the kind of book I want to write. A lot of other people have tried to write that book. And whenever I read those books, it makes me not want to be a Christian because <laughs> if you only have to stay Christian because of threat or because of intimidation, something's yeah. wrong, you know? So, um, but I'll tell you another reason uh, I took this, uh, I took this approach, Mike. Um, I, I, I wish I would have said this in the book. This has only become clear to me since I've been doing some interviews about the book over the last couple of weeks. I'm I, in the first 10 chapters, I talk about Christian history and, and yeah. that carries right to the present. And I talk about harm that's been done. And it's not minor harm. It's not peripheral harm. It, it is major uh, crimes against humanity yeah. type of harm that has been done by leaders of the Christian religion. And, and I would say something. I, about well, this? yeah, because I would love for you actually, because I looked at the table of contact tents, took a photo, sent it to a couple of thoughtful friends of mine. And I go, just yeah. look at this. And I, yeah. I think it would be, and in fact, I was uh, slightly shocked. I mean, I, I know there are certain maybe issues that I can struggle with, with that I do struggle with within the church. But when I saw your part one of the book, the knows, you know, why someone might leave or why reasons that people have given for leaving, I was so shocked and saddened by this list, but I read it and thought, oh my goodness, this is all true and real. I would love for you to go even go down that list and mention some okay. of those things. Sure. Well, I, let me do that in just a second, but, but the, the, just to finish off that, that other thought, um, my, my fear is, and I, I, I almost hesitate to say this, but I think as soon as I say it, people will realize why I have to say it. If I take the worst things that the Christian religion has done in its first 2000 years, I think it could do worse things in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely worried about this. And, and I'm genuinely worried that they would start in the United States, just as a certain kind of evil started in Germany 100 years ago. I think we're in the same kind of emotional milieu, sociological, spiritual milieu. And because I'm worried that these terrible things could happen, um, part, of my, part of my instinct is that we had better face with wide open eyes our, the truth about our history so that we will not repeat those mistakes in the future. I guess the way I could say it is, I, I don't think, I hope people will not stay Christian unless they do so with their eyes wide open about our past. Because I think when you have eyes open to the past, it helps you also be realistic uh, about our responsibilities in this current moment and going forward. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Huge, huge sense. And, uh, and I guess I, uh, not only I, with eyes open, but there's this sense in me with, with moving hands and feet as a, uh, yes. as well. That, that's, uh, yes. Yeah. You, you know, Brian, it, it, it leads me to believe after you said all uh, this that uh, you would not be a good candidate to be a public school teacher in Florida. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, this I mean, this is part of what intensifies 
my concern about this is yeah. watching the the brazen promotion of ignorance. Um, yes, forced oh, I love ignorance. That. Hide the truth from children because the truth will upset our current power structure and uh, and and what it means creates is people who do not love the truth it creates people who love the status quo so uh, would it be helpful for me to just read through the table of contents and that, that would um, be so great the, the first of these 10 chapters is because christianity has been vicious to its mother it, its mother being judaism christianity grew out of judaism and by the end of the first century was developing a vicious anti-semitic attitude that blossoms in the second century. And then um, the second chapter is, and, and I should say, blossoms in the second century, if blossom is the right word, and, and grows through the next 1400, 1500 years. And then just, it, it explodes in the Middle Ages. And um, one of the stories I tell in the book, because the book is written during the pandemic, you know, there were pandemics through European Middle Ages, the, the Middle Ages in Europe, and the Christian majority would periodically uh, need someone to blame for the pandemic. And so they would blame the Jews and, and they would go through and commit horrible atrocities. And, um, and there are a lot of them. And so uh, that, that's the first one. The second one is because of Christianity's suppression of dissent. That's Christian on Christian violence. There was material in chapter two that my editor said, I just don't think you can keep that material there because it's too disturbing. And so I put it in the appendix with a trigger ah. warning. Um, okay. But, well, and thank I mean, you for the appendix, by the way. Yes. Okay. Wow. Because I, I just think we need access to that. And I should say there's stuff that is that I didn't even feel comfortable including in the appendix, just because it's you. Yeah. I mean, it's you just, there's certain images you don't want to put yeah. uh, right. in, in people's minds. The third chapter is because of Christianity's high global death toll and life toll. This is the combination of the crusades and colonialism, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of accelerating violence toward non-Christians um, that many people are, are still unaware of. Um, the fourth chapter, because of Christianity's loyal company men, institutionalism. And I, I wanted to write about this realization that everyone in the Christian industrial complex has conflicts of interest. And, and, and this is not to blame anybody. I have a conflict. I, I mean, I have conflicted interests as a writer. I certainly had him right. as a pastor. And we've got to be aware of where that leads over time. Be, um, fifth is because of Christianity's real master. And I write that chapter about the power of money that we've already touched on chapter six, because of the white Christian old boys network, white patriarchy, and this combination of racial dominance, racial supremacy, and gender supremacy has such far reaching uh, uh, consequences. Um, chapter seven, because Christianity is stuck, toxic theology. And what I try to do in that chapter is not just deal with surface theological issues that we all have seen cause harm, but to realize that there are assumptions underneath those theological issues that are almost never even talked about. And people are waking up in a different universe than the universe of those assumptions. Chapter eight, because Christianity is a failed religion, which is a phrase that I took from the great Catholic novelist, Walker Percy, uh, which is about lack of transformation. Again, something you as spiritual directors, in some ways, spiritual directors get to focus on the issue of personal transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and then chapter nine, because of Christianity's great wall of bias, where I talk about, I, I realize that the problem in my experience of Christianity is not that it was anti-intellectual, but that all of the intellectualism was bent, was twisted to reinforce what we already think. And, um, and then chapter 10, because Christianity is a sinking, shrinking ship of wrinkling people. <laughs> and the idea there is that we're driving our younger generations away and, and consistently. And this has, uh, pretty scary consequences uh, and, and some that uh, are counterintuitive. So yeah, that's, that's, and, and that might sound really depressing, but <laughs> I, I, I have to say though, what's really depressing is to think of the Christian religion going on without addressing these things. Yes. And so, yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And, but, go ahead, Mike. 
Well, I was saying, as I, as, as, I, as I was reading through that, you know, the first chapters, you know, it was kind of piling on. Yeah. And then I looked at the, you know, I'd look, look, look at what was following all that. And I go, okay, there, there's a, there's a guess <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, exactly. that comes in here. But but I have to say I want the T-shirt about the wrinkling, <laughs> shrinking wrinkling. ship of wrinkling people. Yeah, <laughs> it was really kind of funny. Well, and exactly, Mike. I mean, I you know you read part one of the book, which is you know titled "No," all of those things that you just outlined, Brian. And you're certainly hoping there's a part two that is yes. And I think we need to hear about that. I mean, y- you know, you are writing this, but also working through this and answering that question probably for yourself, let alone for, for a bunch of other people too. Do I stay Christian, especially after reading through the first part of your book and things that, you know, we know we're living in right now. Yeah. And, and I should say, you know, for people who there, there are many people who could never leave Christianity, even if they wanted to, if I can say it this way, they are stuck. Um, And there are other people who could never leave because their heart is there and they see so much good. And, but either way, we're better off to, to discuss the yes, having discussed the no, and even though yes. it's painful and, and difficult. Yes. Um, but uh, so in part two, um, in many ways, the central chapter, there are 10 chapters, the fifth chapter is called because of our legendary founder. And that's really the central chapter I talk about that I think the real appeal in this thing is that uh, even though the the name of Jesus gets used in the most horrible ways, when you actually encounter Jesus and you actually try to study and understand Jesus, you know, he's just way better than, I mean, it, 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 we do some pretty horrible things and, and yet it just makes him shine the brighter by contrast to the religion um, that is named, that is ostensibly named after him. But um, the, the other chapters are a little more practical. I talk about the effects of leaving, leaving hurts allies and helps their opponents. And um, so one of the things that keeps me from leaving is the moral injury I would do by leaving to people who are doing amazing good and how I would be aiding and abetting people who I think are doing harm if I were to give up my little footprint in, uh, in the Christian community. Um, because leaving, def- and then chapter 11, because leaving defiantly and staying compliantly are not my only options. And I talk, tell the story of two nuns who helped me understand the idea of staying defiantly. In other words, staying um, to uh, try to make a difference. And then uh, chapter 13 is because where would I go? And I, I talk about the fact that you can walk away from a set of problems, but you have no options that don't involve walking into another set of problems. And so uh, we're always faced with problems and you can walk away and miss some of the treasures. Um, uh, And then chapter 14 was, I think, an important chapter for me to write because it would be a shame to leave a religion in its infancy. And what I try to do in that chapter is to help people think of Christianity as in a much larger time frame, and to say our first 2000 years have been a, a series of adventures in betraying our founder <laughs> um, and taking three steps forward and two steps back. And what that allows me to do is to not be so disappointed and shocked that the religion is still in its infancy. Um, and then we already mentioned uh, our legendary founder. And then there's a, a couple of chapters. Uh, there's a chapter that deals with innocence. And um, that was, uh, of all the chapters, maybe the one where I felt, oh, gosh, I've been trying to put this into words for 20 years. And I finally came to terms with the, the subtle and tricky role of, the, of innocence and shame in our mm. decision-making process. Um, and then this power of solidarity uh, anyhow, we could talk more about that if you'd like. And then chapter 17, I talk about because I'm human and religion is a human phenomenon, including the Christian religion. And if I understand my religion as part of my humanity, it helps me hold the imperfection and the potential of both. And then in chapter 18, I talk about that the fact that Christianity is changing simultaneously for the worse and for the better. And if I only look at the worse, 
uh, I'll miss the, the, the really remarkable ways that Christianity could be on the verge of a very powerful renaissance, as has happened in the past at Christianity's moments of greatest mm -hmm. ugliness and weakness. Chapter 19 is a chapter where I just talk about God and the concept of God and how also we could be on the verge of in phenomenal breakthroughs in, in freedom of the way we think about God and uh, acknowledge our actual experience of God. And then chapter 20 is a, is a, is a chapter about existential threats. It's called Because of Fermi's Paradox and the Great Filter. But it's this realization that, that it's not just the Christian religion that's in trouble. The American government and, and the British government and the Russian government and the Indian government, every nation state is in trouble. And institutions like education and science and like all of the human endeavor is contested and fraught and could easily turn in on itself. And so suddenly realize, oh, there is something bigger going on here than just a problem yes. within Christianity. And that helps me then say, is there a way that inside each part of the larger system, there are this, both the seeds of destruction and the seeds of breakthrough? And what would those seeds of breakthrough be in the Christian faith? So that's an overview of that. Uh, that uh, <laughs> Yes. And there's a lot there. I mean, obviously, uh, I would love for you to step back to um, say, say more about solidarity as a cure. Because, yeah, yeah uh, you started to and then, you know, went on to finish that section too in the book. But I think that would be worth saying a bit more about. So when I'm honest, and I look at the times where I, I tell a story near the beginning of the book of a moment in 2007, when I very literally said to myself, if this happens, I'm out, you know? Um, and I, I, and it's, when those moments come, I realize that a huge part of what's working in me is the sense that there's something dirty and wrong going on in, in my religion. And I don't want to be part of it. So I just want to separate myself from what I think is dirty. Now, there's part of that that to me is absolutely ethical. I do not want to contribute to harm. But, um, but I also realize that there's an urge in this way to clear my name of association with something that I don't like and that I feel reflects badly upon me. <laughs> and if I could be really blunt, reflects badly on my ego. <laughs> Yeah, and, I get that. and then, and then I think, well, so let me separate from my religion. I'll just be a middle-class American, white American male and not a Christian. And then well, shoot, shoot. What identity is more embarrassing right now than being American? <laughs> I mean, our country's tearing itself apart and we yeah. show, you know, I mean, so, so, okay. I got to renounce my citizenship too. Oh, and what can I do about being white? Maybe I can, you know, and, and suddenly realize if I keep trying to separate myself from everything that embarrasses me, I end up hating everybody and considering myself superior to everybody. And if you want to talk about something to be embarrassed about, <laughs> so, so you realize that this game of, tr of needing to clear my name of association mm. with anything that's, that's not right leads in some pretty ugly directions. And so then I think, what's the approach? And what's so interesting to me is I was working on the book and working on this chapter. Suddenly, you just think of Jesus, who's the Pharisees are trying to shame him by saying, you eat with dirty sinners, and you seem to enjoy their company. And instead of saying, no, I don't, or I'm just there to try to help them. He, he tells stories about loving something that's lost. And it, as if to say, my strategy is not to separate from evil. My strategy is to bond with evil, to care about what's, what's unhealthy so that I can help it become more healthy. And I, so I, I'm not trying to protect my ego here. I'm trying to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that motivation, I, I think, I, under, I don't know, I got in touch with that dynamic inside myself in a way that I hadn't uh, before that chapter finally came together. You, you know, I think I, I have said this more than once, and I'm kind of sad to say <laughs> that I, I've said, I'm glad I'm as old as I am. I mean, I'm not that old, 61, but I'm glad that I'm as old as I am because of what's happening in the world today and yeah. what's happening inside Christianity, what's happening politically in this country. 
And, uh, but then I think, no, cause I can't, I can't say that and then sit by and twiddle my thumbs. You know, the, yeah. the, the issue is knowing what we know and you writing what you're writing about and giving us great food for thought and, um, uh, you know, the no, we get the no, the yes, that's really helpful. I think we need to read that whole, that section too, um, to, to build up some hope. And, but I think there are a lot of people um, that need your section three of the book, which is, you know, multi-chaptered, but simply called how I think we are struggling and, you know, and I'm, I'm a smart person, but I, there, there are days I just want to get up and just sit on the sidelines and do, I mean, I just feel, I feel yeah. somewhat hopeless yes. and I'm yes. not sure what, yes. what to do. Mike knows a little bit more. We, we talk about this, but I, I want to hear what have you, yeah. What, what do you think? What did you write about and how, how do you encourage us in the, in the, how, what, what grabbed your heart personally? Yeah. Well, I, I should I should say, um, Anita, that uh, as I finished that part two, it just dawned on me more clearly than it had before, that some people are going to stay Christian and some people aren't, and and because religion, religious identity is destroying some people's lives, mm. and uh, and they to save their lives, they feel they need to get away, and I I really understand that. Uh, whether you're Mormon or Southern Baptist or uh, Shiite Muslim or uh, Theravada Buddhist, there are ways that your religious identity really can destroy you. And so uh, I understand why people need to do that. But here's the problem. If you get rid of your religious identity, you wake up tomorrow in the same world. <laughs> and, and, and you may need to get rid of some of those, you know, those problems. I'm not criticize anybody for that, but we still have the question, what kind of human am I going to be tomorrow? And if I decide to stay Christian, it doesn't solve problems. I still have to, uh, it, it might solve some problems, but I still have to wake up tomorrow and say, how am I going to be a human being yes. and, and, in this world? And that to me is, is ultimately the question that I actually think is the question Jesus was concerned about. I think it was the question that Paul was really concerned about. I have a feeling it's what John the Baptist really cared about yeah. and what Micah and Mary and, uh, you know, so many others that, that, that this is the real question. How, what kind of human beings do we want to be? And, and, uh, and that means acknowledging that I inherited problems I didn't create. And I have to take the pressure off of myself of being able to perfect everything that was imperfect, imperfect. How can I leverage my life and live it well and live it constructively, redemptively? So I have seven chapters where I, I, I really try to let the most important things sift to the surface. One of them is returning to that idea of stages that I just have to keep going on in my own maturity process. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have my own work that I have to keep doing. And if I become more mature, in a sense, I tip the scales of humanity, one person toward a little more maturity. And that's not nothing Would a thousand or a million uh, people do it. You know, yeah. you know, Brian, yeah. well, as you talk about it, as you talk about this, what comes to mind is, uh, and, and what I appreciate about uh, you is that you have undergone a series of mini conversions all your life. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have a friend that, as a dramatic conversion story. Mm. And uh, he talked to me about it. And I said, he says, nobody's listening to that anymore. I says, that's because it happened 25 years ago. Mm. Mm. Tell me about your conversion today. Yes. That's yes. the story I want. Yes. And yes. that's what I hear you saying is that when you live this life, yes. personal faith, there's something new that is being born in you, something old that's going away, but that this is process. And in that process, you actually become a much more interesting human being. Yeah. But, but, but it's but a, just a series of, of, of many of decisions that we make. And it, it comes back, yes, this is the way I'm ordered today. I feel disordered here. This is the decision I'm going to make to reorder. But it happens quicker than we think. And for some, 
it takes a long time because there are yes. bigger decisions that have to be made. But that's what I that's what I hear when you hear man that's been converted over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that that's that's what it feels like. I sure didn't plan it out that way. I just wanted to get it right when I was you know seventeen yeah. and be right for the rest of my life. But life hasn't cooperated with that strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and I should say that the thing that comes out of that, the next chapter is called Start with a Heart, which says really pay attention to desire. And again, this is something that both of you as spiritual directors, I'm, I know that a huge part of what you do is you try to listen to people so that they can figure out what it is that they really desire. So they can have their desires become more conscious so they can see, see them and, and decide, is this a desire that I really desire? And what do I want to do with it? And, and why is this important to me? So, uh, somewhat, so in some ways, I think there is the, the asking of this question ha- invites us to do some important inner work. And Agreed. that inner work will not exempt us from the outer work. But I don't think we can do the outer work in the way we want to without doing that inner work. Yes, yes for sure. Um, carry on talking about the how, I just think, I think that's the struggle point, you know, how do we, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll just let you carry on. Well, well, the next chapter actually is very poignant to me where I am right now. I'm, I'm not at home. I'm in New Jersey at the moment because uh, we had a death in the family. My brother-in-law passed away this past week. Sorry. And so, um, we had the memorial service yesterday, a wonderful person who I just, Everyone who knows him, as soon as you think of him, you smile because he was funny and just a wonderful dad and husband and a brother-in-law. And um, and I'm and he he passed away. And I'm actually sitting in his home office right now because we were here for the funeral. And six feet from my nose, seven feet from my nose right now, out the window is a robin's nest. And as I've been sitting here all day doing interviews, I've been watching this mom robin come in with grass in her beak and watch her perfecting the the shape of the nest. It's just been a delight. I'll never forget this uh, day getting to watch this. And and the third chapter in this house section is called Rewild. And I I I think uh, what one of the things that is becoming clear to me as I'm getting older, and I'm sure you, you would feel the same way in your spiritual direction work. Religion is largely a linguistic activity. We have liturgies of words. We have sacred texts of words. We have arguments about words. We get people in trouble because of words. We test people for promotion based on words. And here I am a writer and speaker. So I know all about the words. And, and when our words become the problem, um, we need something more powerful in words that can reorient us. And I think that this is a truly Christian insight, but I think it goes beyond that, that the original word of God was not words, but it was light and gravity and water and air and uh, stars and robins and mud and, and, uh, and flowers and all the rest. And so I think part of what we are really going to need going forward is to stop being so obsessed with words and learn how to go wordlessly into the wild world and let it impress its wordless logic upon us. And I think to some people that sounds woo-woo and and they think it's irrational and all the rest. All I can say is to whatever degree I've spent my life as a thinker and all the rest, I'm a guy, I'm 66. I know I don't look a day over 76, but I'm, I'm, I'm a 66 year old guy who's spent his life working with words. And the more I work with words, I think they're important, but I think there is a wisdom that comes to us from the natural world. That is not just something that we go and write words about, but it's something that we have to learn to learn its wisdom. And of course the Bible was saying this all along, you know, the book of Proverbs has this whole praise section to wisdom. And it's the wisdom that's seen in, in, in creation. Frankly, I think when John writes, in the beginning was the word or the logos, the word was with God, the word was God, and this was in Jesus, the word was made flesh. I think he's talking about this wordless mm. wisdom that is seen in a living thing. Yeah. So hearing you say that, um, 
I think what it brings forward in me is that that that, that whole uh, monologue about that it sparks my imagination, and I think that's mm. something that's really missing today, mm. and in 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 the church, you know, as we have known it. I mean, I think that's a piece of this as well. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Oh, well, it's so interesting. That word imagination suggests an image. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when I'm looking at this Robin making her nest, what I have an image of is a phenomenal intelligence. I mean, how do you weave like I, I'm looking at her and thinking that nest is going to last through everything. In fact, we had a thunderstorm here last yes. night and the nest is doing just fine. Yep. Like there's phenomenal wisdom. She didn't get it from a book. Right. She, she didn't take nest building 101, 201, the 301. Um, there is wisdom woven into her and uh, oh my goodness. So that image just, it becomes this image that says something to me that I don't need to put words in. And in fact, I'll tell you one of the things it does to me, it humbles me mm. to see the wisdom of a creature that doesn't, that I don't judge that smart. You yeah. know, what's interesting. That's all over the Bible. Go to the ant, you lazy, uh, lazy bones, you know, yeah. uh, there's wisdom to learn from the ant. Um, and, uh, oh, it comes up. The book of Job is the whole last part of the book of Job is this admonition to go out and look at wild creatures and be humbled by them, you know? Well, yeah. the interesting thing is, what if an essential element of humility is a wordless feeling, a, a wordless feeling? It's not a concept, it's a wordless feeling. Well, you know what? If you don't ever get to, to watch a bird build its nest, or you don't ever get to stand in the middle of a thunderstorm and feel how small and fragile you are. Like that feeling will not come to you <laughs> apart yes. from those experiences. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that. I mean, we live on, in Sarasota on the coast yes. and go down to a sunset. And when that sun hits, you know, it does set. It almost seems like there's a quiet that goes over everyone that's there. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's like, we're in the midst of something that God is doing. Yes. And we don't quite understand it, but we know we're drawn to the creator in a way that yes. is magnificent and wonderful and simple. And there's no word that yeah. really describes it. There you go. You just said it, Mike. You just illustrated the point, right? No, no words. We're, um, and and well, I, I just, realize how strong, how... Um, and I know these are words, but it's, it's images too. how, uh, the point I'm trying to make is image, how metaphor speaks, you know, and, yeah. um, but just that whole image thing, I'm kind of caught with that. I, <laughs> that's really, really interesting. Um, I, all right, there's a lot more in the how, but I, we're running out of time and, and I really want to know from you, Brian, um, and what are you, what are you hoping? What, what do you hope someone walks away from? Do I stay Christian with what, you know, what do you, what are they going to take with them? What do you hope they take with them? I, 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 the thing I hope most, and I put, I put this in the introduction and refer to the appendix. I, I hope people read a chapter or two and think, you know what, I think this is going to be a good book. Like you can't ask anybody to believe that until they read a chapter or two. And then I hope they would call a couple of friends and say, hey, how about we read this together and talk about it? Because the changes that we need are changes that are individual and communal. And, and I don't think the individual changes can happen. Well, it's what you experience in spiritual direction. People need someone to be their auditor. They need someone to witness what's going on with them. We need, we need companions. I can say it this way. If we need to think differently, it's almost impossible to think differently alone. You need one, at least one other person to think out loud with. Um, and so I guess the thing I would hope is that people could not only read the book, but know that they're not alone and find some conversation partners to process this together because 
is I think all the things that we need to happen could happen. If, yes. if, isn't it ironic? Like if you think of Jesus in the middle of a messed up world where his nation is about to commit suicide, he knows that if they have a violent revolution, it will crush them. Mm -hmm. And of course, a few decades later, they have a violent revolution and it crushes them, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what does he do? He, say, he says, if just two or three of you will get together, <laughs> I'll be there with you. You'll get through this. And so that's my instinct. Uh, that's what I, what I wish. But the other thing I wish is that if people decide to stay Christian, they will do it with their eyes open about Christianity's danger demonstrated in its first two millennia and its hope and potential also demonstrated. And then I hope that uh, if they decide not to stay Christian, at least for now, that they want to disassociate, that they'll be able to do it without, without it, without their act of leaving, harming them, but with doing that in a way that enables them to actually help precipitate the changes that are needed in them and in Christianity uh, too. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I hope can happen. Well, I'm glad to have wrestled the book back from Mike since he has uh, read it. <laughs> so again, um, do I stay Christian? Um, I commend it to you and we'll have all the information in the show notes and a link to um, Brian's information website, et cetera, social media, et cetera. Um, Brian, thank you for your um, warmth and kindness and uh, joining us again here on Faith Conversations. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for the good work you do. Uh, you know, however many years it's been since we talked last, <laughs> just to think that these conversations are going on. This is exactly what needs to happen. So yeah. thank you. Amen to that. And I always say at the end and we'll again keep the conversation going. 